Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 35. We're in our fourth message in this really wonderful gospel. Mark is called the gospel of action because Mark goes from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. He doesn't give a lot of explanatory notes. You don't hear Jesus actually uh, preaching a ton of sermons. You don't get like a sermon on the mount. As a matter of fact, the sermon on the mount likely happens somewhere between some of the things that we're going to read about today. But Mark doesn't really record it because Mark wants us to see this servant king who loves people, who cares for them, is compassionate toward them, and wants people to know who he is and what authority he has, not only to serve but also to reign. Before we read the passage this morning, I want you to pretend for a moment that you're on an airplane. Pretend that you're by yourself and that you sit down on this plane and let's just say you get on a plane in, in Atlanta and you're traveling out west to Los Angeles and it's going to be about a four and a half hour flight and you sit down beside this person who you strike up this kindred relationship immediately and it's very easy to talk to this person, and, and they, they are inquisitive toward you and you toward them. And this person begins to ask you some personal questions. And, and you like this person, and you know that you're never going to see this person ever again. So you're quite honest with them and have a very fluid conversation with them. And they begin to ask you questions like, so tell me about where you're from. Tell me about your hometown. Where do you live? And you begin to talk about your hometown and where you live and, and what you enjoy about this place and what you don't enjoy about it and, and maybe other places that you live. And then, and then this person says, so tell me about what you do. Are you, do, you, do you work a job or do you care for people or just talk to me about what, how you spend your life. And so you go on for quite a while talking about your, your life and, and what you do. And, and, then, and then this person asks about your family, about your parents your spouse, your children, and begins to inquire a little bit more about those relationships. And, uh, the, you know, the conversation's going back and forth, and you ask uh, this person some questions as well, and then all of a sudden, the person asks you, would you please tell me about your relationship with Jesus Christ? And you think to yourself, wait a minute. Isn't that supposed to be like off-limits on an airplane? Like, aren't you not supposed to stay away from religion and politics? But this person presses in and says, No, I, I, want, you to know, I want to know what your attitude toward Jesus is, what your belief about Jesus is, and what is your relationship with Jesus. And it seems to be a very invasive question. But how would you answer it? How would you answer the question, what is your attitude toward Jesus? What is your belief about Jesus? And what is your relationship? And I think a lot of us Christians would immediately go toward, okay, what are the objective realities I know about the Savior? Okay, you know, A, B, C, D, I know He did this. No, the person even presses you more and says, I want to know what your relationship is like with Him. Tell me about how you relate to Him and what the nature of y'all's time together is and your communication. 
Well, the text before us in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35, really presses us towards that question because it reveals a wide range of beliefs about Jesus, attitudes toward Jesus, and relationships toward Him. And what Mark is actually trying to do is he's trying to say, listen, there is a difference between being an admirer of Jesus and a disciple of Jesus. There is a difference between being a part of the crowd that is pressing in on Jesus and being a disciple that is saying to Jesus, I'm willing to follow you wherever you go. There's a difference between those things. And Mark wants us to see that. And so he does it by showing us four scenes. If you're taking notes, you can actually just write four scenes that reveal the person of Jesus and the variety of ways that people relate to him. Four scenes that reveal the person of Jesus and the variety of ways that people relate to him. And what Mark is pressing us toward this morning is he's saying, you need to worship this Christ. You need to relate to him in a love relationship where he is your your chief aim, your highest affection, your, your, your chief joy in life, and that you look to him as your source for life and joy and love in this world. It is Mark's intention to show us the person and the power and the prestige of Jesus of Nazareth so that we can bow our knees before him and worship him. So let's look at the text and we see scene one. Scene one is the crowd. The crowd. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Mark saying that people from the north and the south and the east and the west. And it wasn't just a five-mile radius. It was miles and miles. People were flocking to Jesus. This was a great crowd. And when the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Now let's stop for a moment. Isn't it interesting that Mark includes that little note? Have a boat ready. In case the crowd comes in and crushes, we can have a place of escape. Guys, what Mark is trying to give us an indication of was the absolute hysteria of this crowd and the number of people. And they weren't just happy to see Jesus or happy to hear a message. They were vigilant. They were violent. They were desperate. And so with this desperation and violence, he says, have a boat ready because it could get ugly. So verse 10, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Mark wants us to see three realities right here in this this scene, in this scene of the crowd. And the first reality he wants us to see is really a small one. It's not his main point, but he wants us to see Jesus' desire. 
Jesus' desire for solitude and communion with his Father and solitude and communion with his disciples. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples. And and after intense scrutiny and ministry, it was always Jesus' practice to withdraw from the crowd for solitude and meditation and discipleship with his people. This is a pattern that we see over and over and over in the Gospels. And I think that it is the Holy Spirit right now that is showing us that this is a principle that even we should consider and we should follow. I mean, this is the thing, y'all. We need to, to serve and love and lay our lives down for other people for the cause of Christ, just like Christ did. But at the same time, we need to spend time in solitude with God, in communion with Him, in desiring to be with Him and with the people of God. I mean, the, the most effective ambassadors for Christ are those who have this balance. Communion with God, closeness with God's people, and then connection with the world in order to reach them. And in that balance is where you find maximizing your influence for the kingdom of God. Now that's just a small part, but you can see that he's withdrawing here with a desire to be with his people. But what, what the main thrust of this scene is, the crowds demand. The crowds demand. Now let's just start right back at 7, and look, 7, 8, 9, and 10 really quickly. A great crowd followed, verse 7. The great crowd came to him, verse 8. They might crush him, verse 9. All who had diseases pressed around him to touch him, verse 10. I mean, uh, the first thing I thought was those 1960s film clips of the Beatles when they would get off the airplane and those throngs and throngs of people were all around. Some of you all have seen those clips before. And, and I think the scene was kind of like that. Except when it was the Beatles, all it was were these, these teenage girls who just wanted to see these guys and potentially touch them or get an get a, a eye contact from them. But here, it's way more than that. Like I said before, it's violence, it's desperation. And I don't know if any of you have ever been to a third world country, if you've ever been outside the United States and been in a scenario where you're in an airport or you're in a marketplace or you're in an orphanage or a hospital, and all you see around you is sickness, all you see is disease, all you see is, is physical deformity, and, and, it, and it really just takes your breath away. It, I mean, you just don't even know what to say. You don't even know what to do. You don't even know what to pray. And y'all, these weren't a bunch of healthy, well-to-do people that are doing just fine who want to see a glimpse of a rock star here. These are people who are desperate, who fit that bill right there, and Jesus sees them. Now, I think in this crowd's demand, we need to observe that Jesus is willing to meet their demands. Jesus is willing to look at a deformed person and make them whole again. Jesus is willing to take a blind person and make him see again. Jesus is willing to take an infirmed or diseased little girl and make her well again. And and Jesus is that way, and we need to see that about Jesus. We need to see his compassion and his love toward the crowds. Jesus is always willing to be interrupted with a personal need. We need to see that. And we need to embrace that about our Savior, that He is compassionate and loving. But y'all, I think Mark wants us to see something else here. I think he wants us to see that the crowds are pressing in on Jesus, not because of who Jesus is, 
Not because He is divine royalty. Not because He is worthy of worship. Not because He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Not because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The crowds are pressing in on Him because He's a miracle worker. He can heal me. He can take the disease out of my sister. He can make my brother see. And I'm bringing him to Jesus. But y'all, I think that if there was another miracle worker that would have been five miles closer than Jesus was to them, that the people would have taken their brother and sister and spouse to that person as well. Okay? We need to see that that the crowd's demand is more for what they can get out of Jesus rather than what they can give to Jesus in worship and praise and adoration. Let's look at the third part that Mark wants us to see in this first scene. is the demon's declaration. The demon's declaration. You are the Son of God, they say. It's interesting that the demons say that. And I want to make a, a statement that some of you are very well aware of. Demons have solid theology. Demons know their scripture. And they are good biblical theologians and systematic theologians. They know theology proper. They know soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. They, they know all of these things. And so they make this pronouncement about, about Jesus, and it is true. It is point blank true. Jesus is the Son of God. And yet Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And he orders them not to say a word. And so that really, that really begs two questions, doesn't it? The first question is, what does this title mean, the Son of God? And the second question then is, why doesn't Jesus want to tell anybody about it? Well, first of all, the title, the Son of God, is a unique title that describes Jesus' um, identity as God. That he has the function and he has the authority of God himself that he is unique, that as the Son of God, not only does he have the function of God, and that he does things on par with God, but he's also the anointed Savior of the world, that he is the promised one. He is the one that the Old Testament has been foretelling about, prophesying about, that this is the ultimate servant, the Messiah, who has come to take away the sin of the world and has also come to be the king that the Jews have been longing for and wanting for centuries. He is the Son of God. And so they make this true statement, and Jesus says, don't dare tell anybody. Why? Why? Well, I think the first reason, y'all, is that Jesus doesn't need demons to declare his identity. Jesus is going to declare his identity when he wants to declare it, in his timing and for his purposes, right? Because he is the sovereign one. He is um, he is the one who has control over that revelation. And not only that, Jesus knows that it's not his time to die yet. It's just not his time. And so, just like Mary in John chapter 2, if y'all can remember the wedding at, at uh, is it Cana in Galilee? You guys remember that? And, and, and she, hey, Jesus, you can turn this water into wine. You can do this. And you remember what Jesus says? Hey, it's, it's not my time yet. There's a timing to these things, and Jesus was adamant about him disclosing his true identity at the time which he felt was necessary. It was Jesus who said, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord, and I'll take it up on my own accord. 
And this is part of that plan and process. Now y'all in this scene right here with this crowd, I want to ask you a few questions in your relationship to Jesus. I want to ask you first of all, do you put demands on Jesus? I mean, do, do you come to Jesus and put demands on Him? I need this, Jesus. I've got to have this, Jesus. I'm desperate for this, Jesus. If you don't give me this, then... Then what? Then what? What, what are you going to do? Right? I mean, He is the Lord of the universe. He is King of kings. He is the Son of God. What Jesus wants us to do and what Mark wants us to see here is that we don't want to approach the Savior with all of these demands. We need to approach the Savior on our knees, on our faces, in humility before Him saying, You are Lord. You are the Son of God. I worship You. I'm not coming, first of all, to get things from You. I'm coming to give You the praise and adoration and worship and honor that You deserve, Jesus. And so, my question, my second question is, do you want to worship Him and learn from Him and follow Him wherever Jesus leads you? Because I think that the way you posture yourself before Jesus is more important than the words that you use toward Jesus. Understand that? The way you posture yourself toward Jesus is more important than whatever words you utter to Him. And the way that Jesus would have us posture ourselves before Him is one of humility and worship rather than get, 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 get. Now, Jesus is compassionate, He's loving, and He's powerful, so He gives us so many things that we ask for and praise His name for that. But when we see the crowd, what we want to see is we want to see that, that Jesus is more than a miracle worker to be exploited. He is a king to be worshipped. And Mark wants to press in on that. Let's look at scene two. Scene two. It's the, the apostles. The apostles. Beginning in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is a compelling passage, and we could spend a week just analyzing this calling and, and these men and, and, and all of that. But I think that Mark definitely wants us to see three things in this scene with the apostles. And the first thing that he wants us to see is Jesus' sovereign call. Jesus' sovereign call. I mean, it is no accident that Mark says, Jesus called to himself those whom he desired, and they came to him. I mean, Mark is making the point that Jesus has both a definite will and a divine persuasiveness at the same time. I mean, look, look at the text, y'all. All right, he wanted them, therefore they came to him. 
He chooses those whom He wants. He calls them out and they come. Jesus is sovereign in His calling of His disciples. Hey, John 15 actually confirms this. Jesus actually says to them later on, He says, you didn't choose Me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This is a microcosm of the sovereign call of God in election and in our own salvation. And we need to see that as such. I mean, if you're a Christian in this, in this room right now, if you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, then, then we need to revel in Jesus' sovereign call. And we need to be able to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And listen to what Ephesians says. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. See, see, this is the sovereign call of Jesus because if Jesus didn't call us in the way that He called the disciples, you and I would have never followed Him. But we would never choose Jesus but He chose us. And just like the disciples came, we have come. Let's praise the sovereignty of our Lord. The second thing that, that Mark wants us to see is, is the strategic plan of Jesus. Look at verses 14 and 15. It's a very strategic plan. It's a chronological plan. The first plan is discipleship and the calling of these apostles. He appointed 12 so that they might be with Him. That they might be with Him. Him. I just want to say right off the bat, if you're ever going to do anything for Jesus, you must spend time with Jesus. I didn't know this. I think I actually was told this probably, but in my early 20s, I was just all about doing something for Jesus. I was all about going and blowing and, and just opening all the doors and knocking and preaching and teaching and everything else, but I didn't really know how and nor was I that desirous to actually spend time with the Lord. And, and, and pardon the crass illustration, y'all, but if you go and go and go, but you haven't filled the gas tank up, then you, you don't have anything to offer. You're not going to be able to go very long with any power, right? And so, first of all, Jesus focuses on discipleship. There, there was nothing more important than for these guys to spend time with Jesus, to listen to him, to watch him, to hear him preach, to hear him teach, to watch his compassion and his mercy, for him to bend down and spend time with a child, or to, to look in the eyes of a mother who's just lost a child and show mercy and grace and compassion, just to be with Jesus and observe everything about his demeanor and his actions and his ministry and his heart and his prayer life. It was discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. And these guys were to take notes on everything that they saw and heard and, and took away from Jesus. That was, first of all, his plan in their, in their apostleship. It was discipleship. The second part of his plan was, was declaration. So that he might send them out to preach. They were appointed to declare the same message that Jesus declared. And what did Jesus declare? Mark says that Jesus declared that the time is near. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what they were preaching. The gospel of Jesus Christ. His person, His work, His identity. 
Had it, had it come to fruition yet? Had Jesus gone to the cross? Had He been resurrected? No, but they were still preaching Christ and that He was the promised Lamb of God who's come away to take the sin from the world. And so they were called to declare, and, and I've said it twice already in the sermon series because Mark is focused on it, but is it not amazing that Jesus chose a group of men, discipled them, and then commissioned them to go out and preach, to declare a message, and that the world has been turned upside down through a group of men who have simply gone out in oratory and declared this message. The world has never been the same again. That's amazing. And the third thing, that, a part of his plan is demon expulsion, that they would have authority to cast out demons. I think the overt and oppressive demonic activity in and around Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee during the time of Jesus was more prevalent it was more active than in any other time. I believe that. Because I believe that Satan set a strategy to, to, to go on the offensive against the kingdom of God. And, and, and he felt like he could be successful in this offensive nature. And so he puts this onslaught of attack uh, uh, upon this area. And Jesus is able to conquer over it, even with his apostles. And... And I think that at the end of Jesus' life, Satan actually thought that he was having some success. You know, when, when ultimately Jesus is betrayed by Judas, he's denied by Peter, he's given over to the religious leaders, they spit on him, they mock him, they beat him, they blaspheme him, and then Pilate gives the okay for him to be crucified. And can't you just see Satan and the demons reveling in the apparent defeat of Jesus and their victory over him? Can't you just see that? But it was all part of Jesus' plan to ultimately have victory over Satan and over demons. And so when he rose from the dead, victory was declared and victory was won. But here... In the apostles having the power over demons, what essentially Jesus is saying is, I want you to bless these afflicted people. I want you to reveal spiritual power. I want you to verify and validate the power of the gospel message so that when people see you casting out these demons, when people see you um, making clean, unclean spirits, they will know that you are from God. And so that's the strategic plan for their discipleship. And then finally in this scene we see Jesus sundry crew s-u-n-d-r-y it's not a word that we really use a lot it just means diverse it means it means a kind of a, a variety of a group of people i wanted to use the phrase motley crew but if you're 35 or older um you have certain images uh that come to mind when you hear motley crew and so we we've chosen sundry crew here but children i want you to know about the disciples that this was not a group of superheroes. When I was a kid, I grew up thinking about the disciples that they were like superheroes. Um, I, I watched superheroes growing up as a kid on Saturdays, and, and you know, Jesus was kind of top of, I mean, uh, Superman um, was top of the list, all right? And so I kind of, 
When I, when I would go to Sunday school the day after Saturday, and I would listen about the disciples and Jesus, I kind of saw Jesus as Superman. I saw the, the disciples as the other superheroes. I even had like Peter and Andrew pinned as like Batman and Robin. All right? And I could just see, I could just see Andrew saying to Peter, you know, Peter, you know, jumping jelly beans, Peter. Did you see what Jesus did? You know, and all the way down the line, you know, Iceman and Aquaman, it kind of had them just pinned down. And y'all, it just wasn't anything like that. So kids, I just want you to know that, that these apostles, these disciples, man, they were just very ordinary, sinful people like you and me. And, and Jesus gathers together a tax collector who is Jewish, but who has, has sold out his Jewish brothers and become really part of a mafia that is exploiting and extorting money from Jews. And then he chooses this, this Jewish zealot who is so fired up about his Jewishness that if he were to catch this tax collector in a back alley, he would pull out his knife and stab him to death because that guy's a Jewish sellout. And then he chose a bunch of fishermen who by, I mean, the Bible doesn't say they were great fishermen, they're just fishermen. And then he chose a guy who was a money grubber. He chose a guy who was a religious skeptic, who was always doubting. I mean, this is a, a sundry, ordinary group of guys that Jesus has chosen. And when it comes to their qualifications for ministry, they were uneducated, ill-trained, and ill-equipped for gospel ministry. Their resumes look nothing like what a a pastor's resume should look. But y'all, this is exactly how God works. I want to read to you what Paul says to the Corinthians. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When I was growing up and even into my teenage years, um, I loved Michael Jordan. I just watched him. I I probably watched that video come fly with me. I don't know how many times I watched it. You know, he was just like a hero. And as a professing Christian myself, I used to think all the time, what if God saved Michael Jordan and set him on fire for Jesus Christ? He could change the world. And then the more I read about the ways of God, and the more I understand the plan of God, what God began to say to me is, what if Ryan Limbaugh got on fire for Jesus Christ? What if Ryan Limbaugh got on fire for the glory of his name? You know what Jesus could do? He could change the world. And the same is true for you and I. All right? Because Jesus takes foolish, unwise, untrained, ill-equipped people and uses them for His glory. He did that very thing with the apostles and the world has never been the same. Now before we move forward, because the last two are going to go fairly quickly, 
Let's just part for a moment. Let me ask you a couple questions. First of all, have you embraced the sovereignty of God's call on your life? Or are you still hanging on to a vestige of your ability? Are you still hanging on to, to, to the pride which says, yeah, but, but, but I made the choice. I was, I was wise enough, I was smart enough, I was strong enough to say, I'm going to get on God's team and He and I are going to make a great pair. Or have you surrendered all of your pride and all of your spiritual arrogance and say, I would have never come to Jesus if He wouldn't have come to me and called me to Himself? I call you today to humble yourself before a sovereign God who's called you into His kingdom. And then, have you embraced Jesus' plan for your life? Have you embraced Jesus' plan for your life? You know, the plan that He had for the disciples is the same plan that He has for you and me. And it can be boiled down into this phrase, to know Him and to make Him known. To know Him and to make Him known. Are you seeking to know Jesus? Are you, are you seeking just to be with Him, to learn from Him, to open up the pages of Scripture and just be wowed by who this person is and what His power is and how prestigious His titles are and His attributes are and how wonderful it's going to be to one day behold His face are you seeking to be with Him so that ultimately you can make Him known to others because that's what God's calling on your life is if you're a Christian? And have you embraced that? And have you embraced your rightful place in the kingdom of God? Some of you have, have pasts, have sins that may have been committed years ago, decades ago even, but you carry them with you around today such that you think of yourself as less than a child of God. And you think of yourself in the back of the spiritual bus. And you think of yourself as just barely getting in through the pearly gates of heaven while there are these other Christians who have their rightful place in the front seats of the kingdom of God and, and they're going to be wearing brighter crowns with better jewels and all of that kind of thing. And I think that what the calling of the disciples says is you can forget all of that. It doesn't matter. There is nobody who is great in the kingdom of God except Jesus. And that, and that we're all, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Certainly it is. We're all come to Him as sinners. But the crowns are all beautiful and glorious in the kingdom of heaven. And we all need to embrace that as well. And so, I want to ask you, have you embraced your rightful place in the kingdom of God? Because Jesus has come to give you confidence that He loves you. He's chosen you. And He wants you to have the comfort of knowing Him. Let's look to scene three. Scene three is the antagonists. The antagonist. A-N-T-A-G-O-N-I-S-T-S. The antagonists. Beginning in verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the power and the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Mark wants us to see really just two things. He wants to see the the accusations that are against Jesus, and then he wants us to see the answer that Jesus provides. And so the accusations are pretty clear. They are simple, and they are terrible. The first accusation is that he's delusional. Now, the ESV uses the, the word family to describe those people who had come to, to Jesus and the house that he was in. But, but the most basic and literal translation is near to him, those near to him, those close to him. It could be his family. It could be his friends. It could be the guys that he grew up around as a teenager and around Nazareth. Or it could be a combination of his relatives and some of his friends and maybe a brother or two or maybe not. I don't think that we need to press exactly, oh, well, this is, this is the, the mother and the brothers that we see later on in this passage. That's not necessary. These are people who know Jesus. These are people who have been around him. And now these are people who have seen this perfect boy grow up into this holy man. But now that he has taken on this, this public ministry, they look at him and what is he doing? He's forgiving sins. Only God forgives sins. He's he's hanging out with sinners. He's socializing with them and eating with them and embracing them. Nobody in the Jewish faith does that. Doesn't he know that? His teaching is outrageous. It's nothing like the scribes. I mean, sure, it sounds like it's it's authoritative and he does use the Bible, but, but still, it's not like anything we've ever heard and I'm not sure what we should think about that. And not only that, He's constantly helping people. He's running himself into the ground. We need to come and rescue this guy because he's out of his mind. Can you see that? See what's going on there? They're saying that he's delusional. And then along comes these scribes. And they have gone down to Jerusalem. And they have met with the leaders. And they have reported about him making an unclean man clean. They have reported about him taking a man with a withered hand and stretching it out and healing him on the Sabbath. They have reported about his authoritative preaching and his wonderful teaching and his compassionate demeanor and how popular he is and how thousands and thousands of people are flocking to him wherever he goes so that they can sit at his feet and hear his teaching and be healed by his power. And they say, we've got to do something about this. And, and, and the thing is this, is we cannot de- deny that his power is spiritual. We cannot de- deny that his power is effective. But what we can deny is the source that he gets that power. And so this is our strategy, y'all. We're going to go back and we're going to say that the power that he has comes from Satan. That's it. 
Because if we say that it comes from Satan, then everybody will be hands off. They'll be, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with Satan. And so that's our strategy. Let's go do it. And that's exactly what they do. They go in and they say, this man is demonic. This man is demonic. He, you, you can't listen to him. You, you need to run away from him because he, he, he's part of the prince of demons. And so Jesus gives an answer to that accusation. And the first thing in his answer is he gives a, a defense. And his defense is, y'all, it's just one of logic. There is nothing mysterious about this. It is, it is pure, perfect logic. And he uses those examples there about the, the kingdom and the house and, and Satan himself. And the bottom line is this, is that um, if a house is divided against itself, it's a family is divided against family members, and you have these family members going up against each other, then there's no way that this family can stand up and be successful as a family unit. And the same is true for Satan. If Satan is divided against himself, there's no way that he can be successful. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm being successful. I'm casting out demons. I'm making unclean people clean. Why would I do that if I was part of Satan's work, if I was wanting to make them unclean, if I was wanting to torment them? So he uses this logic to say, what you're saying doesn't even make sense. But I think one of the most ignored and maybe misunderstood parts of Jesus' defense here, his answer, is his declaration of dominion. If you'll look back down at verse 27, Jesus says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. So, Jesus is saying that if a thief comes into a house, the, the owner of the house is not going to get out of bed and help, and help the, uh, the thief to get all the things that the thief wants to take away, is he? It's not going to happen. And the thief is not going to be successful unless he seizes the owner of the house, ties him up, and then he can take whatever he wants. Satan believes that this world is his house. He believes he owns it, he controls it, and there's nothing that anybody can do about it. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming in. I am God who has become man. I am born of a virgin. I am living perfectly. I have now been baptized by my Father. He declared to me, you are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. And He sent His Spirit upon me. The Spirit of power. The Spirit of dominion. The Spirit of control. And then I was cast out into the wilderness. And I was, I was tempted. And I overcame every temptation that Satan, that Satan brought before me. I had dominion over him then. I'm going to have dominion over him for the rest of my ministry. I'm even going to have dominion over him at the cross. I'm going to exercise that dominion as I raise from the dead. And I'm going to show who has dominion on this planet. Ultimately and finally, I'm going to return from heaven. I'm going to take Satan. I'm going to cast him into the lake of fire. And I'm going to show him whose house this really is. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. That he is able to bind the strong man. And so he has dominion over Satan. And then finally, in, in his answer, he gives this declaration. It's a declaration of comfort and condemnation. 
Jesus is saying, listen, your, your worst actions, your worst words, your worst sins will be forgiven. Be comforted by that. But he says here in a condemning fashion, he says, if you reject me, if you declare me to be from Satan, you will be forgiven nothing. If you look at my life and my ministry and my love for sinners and say that the spirit behind my work is the spirit of Satan, then you will ultimately find yourself eternally bound with Satan in the lake of fire. That's what it is. And so some of you have have often wondered what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Some of you have even been concerned whether or not you've actually committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say that if you have a tender conscience and you're seeking the will of the Lord and you want to obey Him and you're not rejecting Christ, you are in no danger of committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the rejection of the person of Christ, the message of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the work of Christ. It is a specific active and final choice to declare that Jesus is demonic and that the Satan that um, the, the spirit that possessed him was not the holy spirit but a satanic spirit that is the blasphemy of the holy spirit right before we move to scene 4 let me ask you a question or two are you tempted to think that Jesus is too radical. That, he, that he's just over the top. That, 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 that he's just a little bit more than what you really want to bargain for. Y'all, I, I want to be careful when I preach that I don't, put, I don't put guilt on you that you're not guilty of. But I do know that the American church has taken Jesus and has read about Jesus and seen all that He does and they see this big, radical, disturbing, amazing picture of this man who, who just does ministry like nobody's business and, just, and then what we say is, well, we, we don't particularly like this aspect of His ministry. We don't really want to follow suit in this way. Let's shrink Him down into a manageable likable, doable Savior that we can emulate. And y'all, I just think that when we do that, we're mimicking these so-called friends and family members of Jesus by saying He's out of His mind. Jesus is not out of His mind. He has the mind of God. And so when He comes and does all that He does and loves all the people that He loves and pours out His life for others, He's giving us an example of what the perfect, loving, compassionate life looks like. And so I want to ask you, have you embraced all that Jesus is to be, to, to be for you all that He's called you to be? That'll be, the, that'll be the only question I ask in this section. Let's go to scene four. Scene four is the family. The family. Beginning in verse 31. His mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, 
he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Mark wants us to see the interference of Jesus' family members. He wants us to see that Jesus' family members, they certainly love Jesus. They appreciate that He's part of the family. But they have come to interrupt His ministry, possibly to correct Him, possibly just to ask them to come with Him, with themselves. But Jesus hears this message. Okay, they're standing outside the house. And the message finally gets up to someone beside Jesus. And that person tells Jesus, hey, your family's outside. And just like Jesus does throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus takes interruptions like this and immediately makes a teaching point out of it. He speaks a truth. He gives a principle. And he utilizes that in this way to encourage the faith family that is around him. And I I just observed the pronouns Look at verse 33, 34, and 35. Who are my mother and brothers? Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus never denies the special relationship that he had with his biological family. While he was on the cross, Suffering for mine and your sins. He looks down at his mother Mary. And he looks over at John. And he says to John, Behold your mother. And he looks at his mom and says, Behold your son. In other words, take care of my mom for the rest of her life. He, he loved his family. So don't, don't, don't get the impression that Jesus didn't love his family. But Jesus prioritized faith family over physical family. Because a faith family is eternal. A physical family is oftentimes temporary. A faith family is part of the kingdom. A physical family is simply part of a physical family. A faith family has the same ambition, the same aim, the same goal, the glory of God, the joy of all people. A faith family looks beyond themselves and says, we're here for a purpose to build the kingdom. A physical family says, let's, let's get all we can, let's minister one another, and let's not worry about everybody else. And Jesus prioritizes the faith family, and he says, if you love me and you follow me, you are really my family. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The best scenario is that your physical family is part of your faith family. So you've got the best of both worlds. But Redeemer Church, make no mistake, your faith family is priority. You are not to deny your physical family. You're not to, to not love them. No, you love them. You embrace them. You care for them. You provide for them. You protect them. But make your faith family your priority because that is your eternal one and the one that God has called you into for His kingdom. Music team, if y'all come up. This is a lot this morning. This is a lot. And I think it would be it would be tempting of us to maybe get expired emotionally and, and, and intellectually right now. And we just kind of check out and we're just ready to stop thinking and to just start singing and then to ultimately fellowship after the service. But I want to ask you to, to bow before the Lord right now. In whatever way that you 
that you can, can communicate with God and He can communicate with you, I want you to bow. And I want to ask Christy and, and I think Wayne, if you guys would go over to our theme verse. I want you to stand over there as prayer partners. And I want to go back to the question that I asked at the beginning of this message. I want to ask you right now, what is your relationship to Jesus? Right now, I'm the guy next to you on the plane. And we've had good conversation. And we've talked about a lot of of cool things. But right now, I get in your grill. And I look you in your eyes. And I ask you right now, what is your relationship with Jesus? What is your attitude toward Him? What is your belief about Him? And how do you come to Him? If there's an aspect of your relationship with Jesus right now that you know is not right, it is not helpful, it's not liberating, it doesn't give you freedom, it doesn't give you joy. As a matter of fact, you feel oppressed, you feel guilty. You feel enslaved. You feel like you're in bondage. You don't have joy. You've got depression. You don't wake up in the mornings delighted that you've got a Savior. You wake up in the morning feeling like, how am I going to fail my God again today? Listen, y'all. Jesus is the Son of God. And He says in this passage that all sins will be forgiven. Even blasphemies against Him will be forgiven. Come to Him today. Restore your relationship with Him today. And know Him for for who He truly is. The Son of God. The Savior of the world. The Lamb who takes away your sins. Let's stand together. And if you want to pray with one of our prayer partners, go over and pray while we're singing together.